Welcome to Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. On today's episode, we're giving you a holiday treat, one of our favorite Table Topics episodes in podcast format. Join Dr. Anne Marshall as she outlines the creation and spread of lost cause ideology and how white Southerners fought to control the image of slavery and the South in The Rights and Wrongs of History, The Lost Cause and Confederate Civil War Memory. Please note that the audio has been taken from a live Zoom presentation, which premiered April 2nd, 2021, and has been better edited to fit the podcast format. Stay tuned. All right. Hi, welcome to this episode of the Library Commission's Table Topics. Today, we're going to hear about the rights and wrongs of history with Dr. Ann Marshall. And the way this works before I introduce her, just so y'all will know, first of all, these programs are sponsored by the Mississippi Humanities Council. While Dr. Marshall is giving her talk, if you have a question or comment, please put it in the chat. When she's done, we'll recap the chat and I'll ask her any questions there. Dr. Ann E. Marshall is an Associate Professor of History at Mississippi State University. She is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Center College of Kentucky and earned a PhD from the University of Georgia in 2004. She has worked at Mississippi State University since 2006 and teaches numerous graduate level courses as well as undergraduate courses, including Jacksonian American, History of the Old South, and the History of Southern Women. She is the author of Creating a Confederate Kentucky, The Lost Cause and Civil War Memory in a Border State, She has also published numerous journal articles and essays, two of which have won prizes for best article for the year of publication. Marshall has presented numerous papers and commented on panels at conferences, including the American Historical Association, Organization of American Historians, the Southern Historical Association, and the Society of Civil War Historians. Her current book project looks at 19th century anti-slavery politics through the life of the colorful emancipationist Cassius M. Clay. So welcome, Dr. Marshall, and we look forward to hearing your talk. Great. Well, thanks for um, joining me on this Good Friday, and I'm really excited to be here today to talk to you about the concept of the lost cause, which is a term I think we hear a lot, especially in the current um, cultural climate that we're in today, but I don't know that people are particularly, you know, accurate sometimes when they they use this term, or or it's something that we use as sort of a code term for a lot of different things, and and people aren't very particular about the way in which they use it. So I'd like, I'm I'm excited to talk a little bit more about what it is. And essentially what the Lost Cause is and was, is a historical narrative that white elite Southerners developed in the aftermath of the Civil War to explain why the war happened how they fought the war, and why they lost the war. But the lost cause was about much more than that. Between 1880 and about 1920, elite white Southerners used this historical narrative to shape their society and their politics and their culture in ways that went beyond the symbolic and which had very real social and political consequences. The image you see here on the screen is just one such expression of the lost cause. It's the picture of the Confederate monument in downtown Starkville next to the Octibaha County Courthouse, which is just a couple of blocks away from my own house. 
Uh, and this monument was erected and dedicated comparatively recently uh, in 2005. And I'll come back to that story at the end of the, my presentation. But this is a fitting place to begin because monuments and other public symbols like the Confederate flag, for example, are the vestiges that we're most likely to associate with the lost cause today, especially given the current controversies surrounding their presence in public places. But the point I wanna get across today is that these monuments were just the tip of the iceberg, the remnant of the lost cause that we can st still see today. And that the lost cause version of history had far reaching effects and were, that were much more pervasive in the late 19th and early 20th century than we realize. And that the lost cause narrative of history had much more influence over the way that Southerners and actually all Americans remembered the Civil War and its causes than we typically realize. So in this presentation, I want to introduce the lost cause as a concept and talk about how it emerged, not just as a narrative about the war and its causes, but as a political, cultural, and social force in the 19th and 20th century South. And I also want to talk about how it shaped the way generations of white Americans, not just Southerners, understood slavery, the Civil War, and Reconstruction. So what exactly was the lost cause? Well, the lost cause is a term originated in a book of the same name written in 1866, the year after the Civil War ended. It was written by a, a man named Edward Pollard, who was a Richmond newspaper editor, and it was a doorstopper. It was 700 pages long. And in those 700 pages, Pollard laid out the causes of the war, which he stressed were about tariffs and states' rights, not about slavery. And he gave account, an account of the war that pitched it as a noble struggle waged by both brave Confederate military leaders and patriotic citizens on the home front. But Pollard also emphasized that Southerners had lost more than the war. Indeed, he explained that they had lost an entire way of life that had been happily distinctive from that which Americans lived in the rest of the country, a civilization replete with faithful slaves who were, according to Pollard, very well treated, gracious and submissive women, and beneficent and chivalrous patriarchs. But as you see in this quote from the final pages of Pollard's book, there was a touch of defiance in this book. Yes, the South had lost the war and slavery had ended, but white Southerners could still demand states' rights and prevent African-Americans from voting and do so with dignity and respect. So I'm going to just quickly tell you about three major interpretive points of the lost cause that come from Pollard's book. The first had to do with the causes of the Civil War. According to Pollard, the Civil War was about states' rights, about tariffs, not about slavery. And in seceding, white Southerners were just acting on their constitutional rights to protect their property, in slaves, of course, and rejecting federal policy antithetical to their state's well-being. The second major interpretive point was about slavery. Slavery, according to Pollard, was actually not so bad. In fact, he, as he pitched it, and many other Southerners as well, it had been a benevolent institution and that slaves were actually happy and well off. And that in ending slavery, the Civil War had actually upset the natural racial hierarchy. And a third major interpretive point of the lost cause 
had to do with the military prowess of the Confederate armies. Pollard wrote at length about the bravery and skill of the Confederate soldiers and, and claimed that it was unsurpassed and that they, really the only reason that they had been defeated was because of the Union's superior manpower and material resources. So these ideas about the nature of the Civil War and Southern antebellum life quickly transcended Pollard's book and grew into a much broader movement in the South to glorify the war and the men who fought it, and eventually grew into a decades-long ideological movement which shaped the contemporary South, again, as I said, politically, socially, and culturally in various ways. And within this evolving lost cause narrative, there was also a call to action for the future, like the one we saw on the last page of, of Pollard's book. There was a political agenda to this lost cause to help elite white Southerners resist any measures of social and political equality for both African Americans and also for poorer whites, uh, as well as a defiant commitment to retain their own laws and policies in the face of what they saw as federal interference during Reconstruction. So today I'm going to explore these uses of the Lost Cause narrative by looking at several facets of the movement in particular, monuments, textbooks, and popular culture. And I'm going to start with monuments because I think that's what we're, we're most familiar with. Monuments are one of the most visible and permanent ways that we can see how people commemorated the Civil War. If you think about it, parades, Memorial Days, um, and other commemorative activities don't have the same permanence, but monuments, because they're made out of stone and bronze and marble, and because in many places are placed on prime civic real estate, like in front of courthouses or in town squares, enjoy a lot more visibility. Until recently, they've assumed this, this sort of psychological and physical permanence in many communities. In the late 19th century and early 20th centuries, there was also an increase in naming roads and schools and buildings after Confederate generals and leaders. In Mississippi, for example, Jeff Davis County was founded in 1906. In the small town of Moss Point, Mississippi, there, there are no fewer than 15 roads named after Confederate generals. And you can see here on this map that there was this, you know, in many Southern states, there are, you know, hundreds of these Confederate monuments, again, most of which went up between 1890 and 1920. And the timing of this occurred for a couple of reasons. One was the founding of the United Daughters of the Confederacy in 1894. And I'll just refer to the United Daughters of the Confederacy from here on out as the UDC. The UDC was a socially elite organization that in 1894 absorbed a bunch of local ladies memorial and ladies monument associations from around the South. And they really carried out the organizing and fundraising efforts to pay for monuments in their communities. Most Confederate monuments in the country today are there because the United Daughters of the Confederacy organized the, the fundraising efforts for that. The second reason for this proliferation during this time had to do with the technology of making the monuments. Monument companies sprung up and started to sell these sort of standardized 
bronze statues at relatively inexpensive prices. You know, it was a few thousand dollars versus if you had to hire a sculptor to come in and, you know, commission a sculptor, then you were talking tens of thousands of dollars. So, you know, these small Southern communities could afford this kind of, you know, a standardized design that you could buy from a, a monument company like the one here, Muldoon Monument Company. So they became more affordable. And the timing was also meaningful for another reason. The years between 1890 and 1920 also marked the high point of white Southerners' efforts to implement practices of social segregation and political disenfranchisement. This was also the time that they fought against the political insurgency led by poor and middling whites, which threatened to the political domination of wealthy whites. Here you can see that the rise in monuments happens in roughly the same year that you have the bulk of the racial lynchings in the South. So Mississippi's spate of Confederate monuments, for example, went up amidst a, a um, concerted effort by state leaders to undo permanently the gains that African-Americans had made during Reconstruction. Beginning in the 1880s, the state passed all kinds of segregation laws, and Mississippi also ratified a new constitution in 1890, which implemented poll taxes and literacy tests to prevent African-Americans from voting. This was also the time period in 1894 when Mississippi adopted our previous flag, which of course featured that Confederate battle flag. So recently, in the last, you know, 50 or so years, some white Southerners have tried to deny the connection between Confederate symbolism and white supremacy. White Southerners at the time were very clear about the connection between the two. And I'll offer one example, which comes from the dedication of a monument that has been the center of recent controversy in the last few years. And this is a statue known as Silent Sam, which until 2018 sat on the campus of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. It was placed there in 1913. And the, the featured speaker at the unveiling was a man named Julian Carr, who was a Confederate veteran and a wealthy entrepreneur who had made his fortune in tobacco and cotton after the war. He was also a pioneer in the state's Confederate memorial community. And at the dedication for the statue, Carr underscored the clear link between remembering the Civil War and Reconstruction and the lesson that he thought this monument should impart to the students who were on the campus of University of North Carolina in the present. He told a large crowd at the unveiling, quote, the present generation, I am persuaded, scarcely takes note of what the Confederate soldier meant to the welfare of the Anglo-Saxon race during the four years immediately succeeding the war, when the facts are their courage and steadfastness saved the very life of the Anglo-Saxon race in the South when the so-called bottom rail was on top all over the Southern states. And today, as a consequence, the purest strain of the Anglo-Saxon is to be found in the 13 Southern states, praise God. So Carr was pointing to the heroism of Confederates at, during the war, but also their importance to beating back the tide of federal reconstruction, what had, which had sought to give African-Americans power. And now in 1913, thanks to their courage and effort, he was saying that North Carolinians could rest easy that white supremacy had been preserved. So to Carr, the monument was as much about the Southern victory over what he felt was the imposition of federal rule, their policies 
of racial equality during Reconstruction as it was about honoring the defeated Confederate soldiers. And as you can see referenced here in the cartoon, there was this cartoon that was published in the uh, Raleigh newspaper in, in 2018 also references another part of Carr's dedication speech in which he bragged about publicly whipping what he called a Negro wench because she had disrespected a white woman. So basically he bragged about putting her back in her place during Reconstruction. So while not all dedication speeches were so graphically racist, the people who erected monuments to the Confederate dead clearly connected the social and political wars of the past to those of the present. We can see this in other ways too. Southerners used monuments at times to portray the idealized version of their past. So a good example of that is one of the more ornate Confederate monuments in the country. This is the one that is in Arlington National Cemetery. It was commissioned in 1910 and then unveiled in 1916 by President Woodrow Wilson himself. And it cost $64,000 to build. That was a lot, a lot of money back then. And you can probably see why it was so expensive. Unlike the mass-produced monuments proliferating in small towns all over the South, this one featured an intricately carved frieze that had some really interesting vignettes in it. Um, the woman at the top symbolized the South, acknowledging the sacrifice of her fallen sons. But we can see, if we look closer up to the frieze, uh, scenes of husband soldiers leaving their wives, families sacrificing their sons to Confederate service, an officer kissing his infant child who is being handed to him from the arms of her African-American mammy. The middle of this picture here, you can see an African-American slave following his young master into war. So the Arlington Monument contained all of this, these, these celebrated elements of the Old South, the heroic men of all classes that were united in their loyalty to the Confederate cause, self-sacrificing Confederate women, and faithful slaves. And this defense of the Southern institution of slavery that we see in, you know, that's just intrinsic in this uh, imagery on the monument and portraying it as this benign institution and slaves as being faithful and loyal was one of the most common themes in Confederate symbolism. And it was also the impetus behind the effort of dozens of the United Daughters of the Confederacy chapters in Kentucky to try to censor culture in another interesting way just after the turn of the century. Beginning in 1902, the Lexington, Kentucky United Daughters of the Confederacy chapter attempted to ban the traveling production of Uncle Tom's Cabin at the local opera house. So this was a time period before there were films, and so the highest form of entertainment in most places were theater productions. And uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin was one of the most widely touring productions in the country, and it came to a lot of towns at least once or twice a year. And it was actually a popular attraction for both white audiences and African-American audiences as well. But the theater production of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which with its visceral imagery that included unsavory slave catchers and baying bloodhounds, 
cruel owners, ran counter to the, the you know, beautiful, cultural, benevolent South that the UDC prized. And so they wrote a letter of protest to the local opera house asking them to cease the showing of this production because, as they put it, the play was injurious to the community both because the production and the novel that it was based on, quote, presented a picture of slavery in the South that is essentially false. False because it presents what was rare and exceptional as normal and typical. And the UDC countered and said, no, really, the master relations between masters and slave were actually, as they put it, kindly and mutually beneficial. But importantly, the UDC was very open about the fact that their objections were not just about the power of the play over the way that people saw the past, but the way that that portrayal could affect the present. And as one of their supporters put it, Tom's shows only serve to fan the fires of discontent in the minds and hearts of the Negro population. They exhibit to the younger Negroes an untrue, abnormal status of slavery as it existed and implant in their minds a hatred of whites. The Negroes themselves ought to protest against such shows, which only serve to injure them. All should be done that can to maintain kindly relations between the whites and the blacks. A Louisville, Kentucky chapter of the UDC shared an even more dire prediction when they asserted that, quote, the play preyed upon the emotional nature of the younger Negroes and stirred within them a desire for revenge against their former masters. The white commentators seemed to miss the irony that the Jim Crow system that they were so committed to upholding at this time was much more likely to inspire the animus of local African-Americans than Uncle Tom's Cabin was. This was actually a, something that was pointed out by an African-American man who wrote a letter to the Lexington newspaper, and he only signed it with the name Son of Ex-Slave. But he wrote, he said, Lexingtonians wouldn't have to worry so much about the battles of the past should they drop the color line. But this, of course, was not what the intent of the uh, UDC was. And their campaign ultimately proved successful. In March 1906, they got the state legislature to pass a statute known as the Uncle Tom's Cabin Law, which stated it shall be unlawful for any person to present or participate in the presentation of, or to permit to be presented in any opera house, theater, hall, or other building under his control, any play that is based upon antagonism alleged formally to exist between master and slave or that excites race prejudice. And breaking this law was punishable by fines and imprisonment. But the most enduringly influential effects of the Lost Cause Partisans was their effort for several generations to censor grade school and college textbooks. This cultural campaign shaped the way that Southern children learned about slavery and the causes of the Civil War for generations to come. Their motives for doing so were clear in Stephen D. Lee's warning to a group of Civil War veterans in 1895. Lee, who had been a general in the Army of the Tennessee and who was currently serving as the first president of Mississippi Agricultural and Mechanical College, now Mississippi State University and my place of employment, he said that the record of history will contain many errors and false indictments against the South which have originated with Northern writers. And he served as the, the chair of the United Confederate Veterans History Committee. And in this position, Lee strongly urged, as he put it, 
that Southerners, quote, avoid as far as possible books and literature which are unfair and unkind to the South, which belittle our achievements, impugn our motives, and malign the characters of our illustrious leaders. He noted, for example, that appropriate textbooks should convey that the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery, but rather the, quote, dignified withdrawal of the Southern states from the Union to preserve their constitutional rights. And when uh, judging appropriate books, he, he singled out not just a, an array of Northern textbooks, but also some well-regarded reference books, including the Encyclopedia Britannica. But the most important activist for these so-called impartial textbooks in Confederate history was a woman named Mildred Lewis Rutherford, who served as the historian general of the United Daughters of the Confederacy between 1910 and 1916. So Rutherford was from a prominent slave-owning Georgia family and was barely 10 years old when the war began. Uh, she never married, and she had this full career as, a, as the principal and president of a girls finishing school in Athens, Georgia called the Lucy Cobb Institute. And as you see in this photo, she often appeared at, at her speaking engagements in full antebellum garb. Like Lee, Rutherford felt that the South was unfairly represented in national histories which focused on slavery as an evil institution. She didn't like their, their emphasis on the Civil War as being a great occasion because it emancipated slaves. And she felt like it was her life's work to correct these interpretations and to defend the South's actions during slavery, during the war, and afterwards. She wholeheartedly defended white supremacy and its agents, including the Ku Klux Klan. In 1912, she gave a speech at a UDC convention where she excused the racial violence that whites had committed during Reconstruction, proclaiming, quote, the Southern white man was compelled to establish the political supremacy in the South. On another occasion, she declared that, quote, the Ku Klux Klan was an absolute necessity in the South at the time. The order was not composed of the riffraff, as has been represented in history, but the very flower of Southern manhood. The chivalry of the South demanded pr the protection of women and children of the South. Rutherford presented her own take on slavery in an address entitled, Wrongs of History Righted. And that's, this is where I, I got the title of this talk. In this talk, she said, under the institution of slavery, the Negro was the free man and the white was the slave. Before slavery, Africans were savage without thought of clothes and sometimes cannibals. Under slavery, however, they were the happiest set of people on the face of the globe, free from care or thought of food, clothes, home, or religious privilege. And then this interpretation of history, even the despised Reconstruction period and the Reconstruction amendments could be seen as validating the South. According to Rutherford, quote, no higher compliment was ever paid to the institution of slavery than by the North, which was willing to make the Negro its social and political equal after 100 years of civilization under Southern Christianizing influence. Rutherford was a prolific author. She wrote dozens of books and pamphlets, but none of them were as influential as this one here, titled A Measuring Rod to Test Textbooks and Reference Books in Schools, Colleges, and Libraries. And so this is the book in which Rutherford set out the criteria for acceptable educational material. 
and you can see here I put up a quote um, just to give you a flavor of what she said. She said, reject a book that speaks of the Constitution other than as a compact between sovereign states that calls the Confederate soldier a traitor or a rebel, and that the war of rebellion that says the South fought to hold her slaves, that speaks of the slaveholder of the South as cruel and unjust as his slaves, and that glorifies Abraham Lincoln. Really, this was so influential because then as now, textbooks are chosen, they're the purview of states, right? They're the purview of departments of education at the state level. And so because of this, because the UDC members and the UCV members tended to be the elite people in their communities and they tended to be the politically powerful people in their state, they had a lot of leverage to control which reading material was adopted in those states. And because of that, they could even you know, pressure textbook companies to remove words such as treason and rebellion from the associ their association with Confederate war efforts. And because of their influence, many Southern students in public and private schools learned this lost cause version of history through much of the 20th century and in some places beyond. So thus far, I have described lost cause efforts as being led by white Southerners for other Southerners, but I think it's really important to point out that by the second and third decades of the 20th century, the lost cause narrative and this idea of a benevolent system of slavery, a civil war caused by states' rights, and the Reconstruction period as one that was abusive, um, and punitive towards white Southerners was broadly accepted amongst white Americans, not just Southerners, thanks to a national popular culture, which included fiction, consumer items, tourist attractions, and perhaps most importantly, popular films like The Birth of a Nation, which came out in 1915, and Gone with the Wind, which came out in um, 1939. These films were wildly popular and watched by millions of Americans, North and South. And you, if we look at these, you know, title, I don't think that's the actual proper term for them, but these little title pages that began Gone with the Wind to set up the movie, we can see how this lost cause narrative, right, comes onto the big screen. This is an enormously popular movie. People buy into it. And, and it really romanticizes the Old South. It romanticizes the institution of slavery, the state's rights version of, of Civil War and Reconstruction. And so these narratives become broadly accepted amongst white Americans for decades. But it's also important to acknowledge that despite the overwhelming power of the lost cause narrative, it did have its challengers and in big ways and smalls, some, some white Americans, but many African Americans challenged the lost cause interpretation of history. For example, the NAACP, as well as local African American organizations, organized boycotts of Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind. In 1923, the NAACP succeeded in scuttling plans for a proposed Mammy Monument that the Richmond chapter of the UDC was going to build in the nation's capital. It was supposed to be a monument to the memory of the faithful colored mammies of the South. 
the protest of the NAACP and particularly of African-American women uh, succeeded in stopping the project. And you can see this is actually a cartoon that was reprinted from a Baltimore African-American newspaper parodying the idea of such a monument. You can see it says under her, it says, in grateful memory to one we never paid a cent of wages during a lifetime of service. And then the, the cartoon uh, on the right-hand side, you know, points out that this is going on during the same time period that they're trying to, you know, wanting to honor their faithful servants. There's the lynching going on in the South is, is just rampant. And so there are these efforts in Congress every few years beginning in the early 1920s to pass an anti-lynching bill that would make lynching a crime. And those efforts are stopped again and again by the Southern Democrats that are in Congress. So this is pointing out that, you know, the, the, the just hypocrisy of trying to honor these faithful African-American women while they're killing their sons, as this, this cartoon on the right talks about. So this brings me back um, really quickly. I'm rushing here through 100 years of history back to 21st century Starkville. So in 2005, when the UDC proposed to build this statue, there was a large outcry from the local African-American community and a local civil rights group, the Octavaha County Justice Coalition, tried and, but failed to prevent this monument from being erected on the courthouse lawn. But because 2005 was not 1895, African-Americans could also now lay claim to the same public space that traditionally was given over to Lost Cause monuments, and they erected their own monument. This one read, in memory of those who served during the war between the states, 1861 to 1865, they were brothers that stood for the freedom of others, the Coalition for the Union Soldiers of America. So these two monuments stand side by side today next to the courthouse. They've been moved from the foreground of the courthouse lawn to sort of between the courthouse building and another building, sort of in the shadows there. So, and, and I think this points to the fact that, that while the strains of the lost cause narrative are by no means gone from today's politics or public spaces, as we have seen in the past several years, it is no longer a version of history that goes unchallenged. And that's all I have. I'm, I'm, I let, was hoping to leave a, some time for questions. I'm hoping we'll have some. Well, thank you, first of all, for that. I took a lot of notes. The first thing I wanted to, uh, the ad for the Muldoon Monument Company, I like that they're very humble and they're like, we provide first class plain or artistic work. Like, <laughs> It's, it's like, there's no frills, but it's awesome. No, no it's a fun, yeah, one of my favorite stories from uh, Muldoon Monument Mon Company was that they, there's a little town, well, it's not so little anymore, but it used to be a little town outside of Lexington, Kentucky called Nicholasville. And so, you know, the smaller the town, the harder they had to work to raise money to pay for these Confederate monuments. And they basically scraped together enough money to buy a union monument that, that Muldoon had you know, been commissioned to 
was going to go to some community, probably in Ohio or Indiana or somewhere, but, you know, no one ever took delivery of it. So they had this old union monument, and so they were able to, you know, basically change the, the belt buckle on the monument from, to say, CSA instead of USA, um, and sold it at a discount to this, you know, this town that wanted a Confederate monument. So, yeah, it's not, you know, it was just interchangeable bronze figures, you know. You, you just can't deny people's ability to like fill a need. Right. It can make a business out of anything. So. Yeah. But the, the thing I'm really struck by, just a, a side note, in Mississippi library history, women's clubs were very influential in getting library service to every community. And they were influential in getting the library commission as a state agency. But when those women's groups decide on a thing, you know, they can't be stopped. And then sometimes it's good. And in the case of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, the the reach they had, I am astounded by. The monuments are, are one thing, but the Uncle Tom's Cabin statute is amazing. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, I think, and this is of course happened before women even had the right to vote, right? So they technically don't have, you know, political power as we tend to think of it today. But because things like education, like reading, like library book, you know, literacy, and like public history, those were considered actually to be women's work because it was kind of an extension of their function of maternal care and, and educating their children to become young citizens. And so because of that, they had, you know, they played this very traditional role in society in a way, but it was very powerful because these women in Kentucky, they, you know, they went and they talked to their state representatives and they called them. This was when telephones were kind of, you know, only rich people had telephones and they called them up on the phone. Right. And that was kind of exerting um, for a woman to call her state representative and sort of insert herself into politics. It had to be something that was considered within her purview, right? Within their natural purview. And so, yeah, they really did in this sort of very traditional trappings, they really exerted a lot of power. The PR spin is just incredible. I didn't realize how quickly the lost cause narrative was spun, but mm-hmm. that it, it's the next year that that yeah. this book right. comes out. Like, I mean, I, I know that there wasn't like a factory full of people trying right. to figure out which narrative they were going to go with, but yeah. I like to think that there was, and they were like, oh, we've hit it. There's three main things. Right. So, you know, that's just Edward Pollard's one book, but, you know, you've got people um, like, for example, Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, before and during the war is so, so clear that this is a war of slavery. You know, we can read this in Mississippi's secession document that says, you know, our position is clearly aligned with the institution of slavery. We're trying to save slavery. But after the war, if you read Jefferson Davis's memoirs, he tells a different story. So after slavery is, is over, white Southerners realize, well, that's not a great look for us to actually defend slavery. Although clearly many people had no problem with it, like Mildred Rutherford, but then they're just, you know, they're just going to retool their arguments about what the, what the war was really about. And that's, that's the way that most Southerners went about it. And it's pretty dramatic shift. Okay. We have a question from our Facebook. Do you think the expenses associated with moving the Confederate Memorial at the University of Mississippi and the improvements to the new site for it will affect future decisions about other Confederate monuments in the state. 
Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that has been a, you know, and these removal issues can, they're always rather fraught because each locality has to figure out the localities that decide they want to move their monuments have to, you know, figure out are there state laws that prohibit this? Because there have been a lot of states that in the last 15, 20 years have instituted laws that that prohibit the removal of these monuments. So you have to get special permission to do that. And then, yeah, and then there's the expense of moving it and figuring out where to store it or where to resituate it. And so I think, I mean, I think that's, you know, I'm not sure if the University of Mississippi is particularly unique in that. And, and you know, in some places, they're not as concerned about where these monuments go afterwards. Um, but yeah, somebody has to pay for it to, to be moved. So where does that money come from? You know, in the case of Silent Sam, for example, I think it, it was a couple million dollars that they gave to the United Confederate Veterans. <laughs> that was the, the state money, you know, state money, the university taxpayer money going to this lost cause organization just because they're trying to get it. So, so we can ask whether that was a very good use of, you know, decision about where to park that, you know, where, who to entrust that money with. But yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think I'm not sure how much logistical concerns. I think it's, it's, you know, that's always a concern, but I do think it's more about, you know, I think most people would look at, for example, the case of the University of Mississippi as being more about the public backlash to, to the removal of the monument and the sort of cultural politics that surround that. But yeah, certainly logistical issues are there as well. We had a question about since, you know, many Confederate monuments are being taken down now, do you think this is a sign of more people letting go of this false narrative? And do you think we'll see more monuments taken down? Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a great question. I, I think it is. I think people are much more aware than they were 20 years ago of what the narrative is. But I, I think it's still a lot of people, and part of this is historians haven't done a great job of explaining, as, as I tried to do a, a little bit today about the the monuments are just like just the tip of the iceberg, right? That there's really this baked in narrative that is in lots of areas of our cultural life. One example of this is the recent controversy on The Bachelor. Um, I, I personally don't watch The Bachelor. I watch a lot of other questionable television, but not The Bachelor. But um, if anyone, you know, it was brought to my attention that there was a controversy because I guess the, the woman who won had appeared a few years ago in her college, uh, in some college pictures going to an Old South ball, right? And so The Bachelor this year was African-American. And there was this whole thing where he, you know, once once The Bachelor figured this out, he broke up with her, you know, and, and they had this whole conversation on national television where this woman was debriefed about did she know what she was doing when she was dressed up in a hoop skirt at this college party and you know, my thinking was like, oh my gosh, this might be what, this might be the way that people start thinking about, because she hadn't, you know, according to her, she hadn't thought about what she was doing. And I think, you know, having these, 
these discussions, these larger discussions about the portrayal of the Southern past, right? And the, and particularly the, the, the way that we portray history or glorify history or, um, you know, maybe that will cause people to start thinking. I mean, I do think the monuments are just the beginning of it, right? People are now starting to question whether they should be getting married on plantations, you know? I mean, all of these kinds of, and, and I think it's particularly fraught in places, you know, like Mississippi, which, you know, oftentimes used icons of the old South. And some are, some are more evocative than other, but, you know, we like to celebrate cotton. Well, what does that mean to celebrate cotton, right? Like, how are we celebrating it? So yeah, I do think that more monuments will come down. I do think it's important, I will say, I think it's really important that communities who are considering taking down monuments have a whole conversation about it. I mean, people should understand what that that represented and why it's problematic and it it should be a larger conversation. So I think I I hope I answered that question. I know I went off on a couple of tangents there, but. I think you did. We had another comment about the kerfluffle, that's the official word used in the the chat, in Mississippi in the late 70s, early 80s, when they wanted to change history texts from the John K. Bettersworth version that has mythologized glossed over history to one that was more historically accurate. Do you, can you talk about that or is that part of where you I'm not, I'm not particularly well versed on that particular kerfuffle. <laughs> I am, um, yeah, I, I'm not, I mean, I, I know of the Bettersworth text and I know that it was used for a long time and I know it's actually, that would make a really good journal article for somebody or maybe a popular article. So people would want to read it. But yeah, I think that's an issue. And, you know, even, I mean, today these, these textbook controversies are still going on. I know in Texas, for example, just in the last 10 years, this has been an issue about certain ways that things have been phrased, you know, in terms of secession and slavery. The, it might not be the UDC anymore, but if there's enough, you know, people in a state, right, that are, that are pushing the kinds of interpretations that are lost cause interpretations, especially in markets, like, for example, Texas is, you know, buys a lot of textbooks. So I, I believe that the peop, the authors of the textbook in question in, in Texas were actually in Connecticut, but they're going to bow down to you know, what, what this, these people in this huge market want. So that's, you know, that's still an issue. I mean, we, I still get students in my classroom who have heard the lost cause version of history in their mm-hmm. high schools. I really would struck by how, you know, like the whole PR mastery of this whole situation, but whoever's idea it was to get into the textbooks, you have generations and generations. Like it's not just Pollard's one book and it's not just being, it's not just in pop culture. It's not just in, you see a monument downtown or whatever. It's literally part of the school curriculum. It's, it's brilliant in its terrible way. And then there's, I think, the resistance to change, even though they were quick to change the, I, the whole concept of what the Civil War was about, you know, if that's what you learn in school and then someone tells you that was incorrect, that's probably part of some of the, um, well, it was good enough for me. I, I learned that in school. We can't change it. That's, anyway, just, I just went on a ramble about, <laughs> about the textbook thing, but. No, I think that's true. I mean, yeah, it's just really hard to undo, you know. Right. It's just so pervasive and widespread, but again, in its way, it's, it's a great, if you can get into the textbook, evil people of the world, that's, that's the way to, uh, 
get your narrative across. Okay, well, it looks like we are exactly right at an hour, and this was fascinating and informative, and I appreciate you taking the time to tell us all about the Lost Cause. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks to everybody who listened in on their lunch break on a holiday. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, again, thanks for everyone who uh, tuned in either on Zoom or Facebook, or if you're watching this on YouTube later, we still appreciate you, even if you weren't here at the moment. So again, thanks for coming and we hope to see you next time. Thank you for listening to Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. We hope you will tune in next time and we encourage you to visit your local public library office.